Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Online Warriors podcast. It is Wednesday, 11-11. So first of all, happy Veterans Day. Thanks to all who have served. For the, I guess for the listeners in America, and actually for the listeners outside of America, November 11th is Veterans Day. We have a special episode today. I'm, of course, Legal86, and I'm joined, as always, by Nerd Bomber and Tactic. Say what's up, y'all. What's up? Hi. Oh, that's an old, that's a throwback. But the, was that Bud Light or Budweiser, one of the two? I think so. Uh, I don't know. I know it was like a frog said it. That was just the fringe of like when I was old enough to remember commercials. So you dug deep for that one. We have a great episode today. Not only do we have a usual slate of news topics, we're going to be talking about Star Wars, particularly Darth Maul. We're going to, of course, be talking a little bit about Alex Trebek, as, as sad as that is. And the Mass Effect remaster news, which Nerd Bomber is going to go absolutely crazy about later in the episode. So we have those topics, but we also have a very special interview today with actress Amy Rutledge from rent So we're actually going to start off with that, and we're going to introduce Amy to the show right now. So, uh, so take a listen and enjoy. So, so Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I guess to start at the top, before we get into Rent-A-Pal and stuff, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, basically how you got started in the industry, what inspired you to pursue a career in acting, which, by the way, makes me personally jealous and probably a lot of our listeners personally jealous. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. Like, I, I'm, I'm really am grateful and just really honored to be on here and talking with you guys today. So thank you so much. I actually had the sense that I wanted to be in the industry when I was really young. And I feel in a way that I'm really lucky because at the age of three years old, like not even exaggerating, I knew that I wanted to be a part of the magic that was when I watched films and TV. And so my grandmother was a really amazing pianist and musician. And so she would always have on like musicals. And I I specifically remember watching um, The Sound of Music. And I was three and just standing up on my chair where you watch it around the dinner table and just like belting out the songs. And then when I was alone, I would go down and line up all my stuffed animals and like all my toys and like sing and perform for them. And it's kind of actually amazing because it was this plant seed was planted pretty early on. And I had no one in my family or in my life that, you know, wanted to be an actor was in this business. So it really just kind of came to me and it's something that I always want to do. But when I grew up, where I grew up, I grew up in a very small northwest New Jersey town, and really the main focus was on sports. So I grew up, you know, doing cheerleading and gymnastics and like horseback riding, and sports was really valued in my community. Um, and there really wasn't any resources for for acting or that kind of world. So my mom would bring me every once in a while to New York City when she could for acting classes growing up and then, you know, some summer camps and stuff like that. But I really didn't get my start until I was a little older. I was about, I think I was 19 or 20 and I booked my first feature film and indie film with no experience. So I'm really grateful for that. I kind of see that as my big break because, you know, to get a lead in an indie film without any experience whatsoever um, was really massive. <laughs> I'll always be grateful for that. And then it kind of just took off from there and like, you know, getting referred by people I was working with and, you know, I would join forces with a group of friends and we would do plays and then we would make movies out of the plays and doing the whole film film festival circuit. And yeah, so I've been acting really on and off for the last, I guess, 14 years. Um, and here we are now <laughs> with Rent-A-Pal. It's just really lucky break. 
So that's kind of a really good segue to um, the fact that a decent amount of the films you've been in have been kind of the horror slash thriller genre. So what specifically with that actually draws you to that genre or was it more of a coincidence? I, I always grew up watching horror films and I love them. And I love the thrill. I love the the scare factor. I liked, you know, it kind of like when you're riding a roller coaster, you know, like this, that thrill of like that fear that you know is not real but you know it's ex- exciting in a way and um mm-hmm. I think my dad my dad had me watching Jaws when I was like six years old I think like I watched so many horrible horror films growing up <laughs> um and I'm kind of like a little tr- traumatized now <laughs> about it but um I actually haven't done more horror films than any other genre really it's just the horror films that I've been in were the ones that had just distribution deals but I, they kind of just came to me and, you know, I took them, of course, and I actually had not wanted to do horror anymore just because I was dealing with my own mental health. And now that I'm older, I'm kind of like a wuss, like I can't watch horror films anymore. It's just really mm-hmm. this weird switch happened as I got older where like I'm having like horrific nightmares and like the images that I see are like burned into my brain like for the rest of my life. And so I was like, you know, I need to just t- t- take a step away and just not do horror anymore. And, like, I swear it was, like, the week later that I got offered to read the script for Rent-A-Pal, and I didn't realize what genre it was up front, and then I read it till the, you know, one part, and I was like, oh, my God! (laughs) It took a quick turn, quick dark turn, and I was like, oh, man, I'm like, I have to go back on my word. Like, I know I said that I wasn't going to do this anymore, but this is an amazing script, and the people that I was, you know, interacting with John and everyone, um, they were just so amazing, and I'm like, this is something really special, so I have to take it. So kind of segueing into, you know, how horror movies can really kind of impact your mental health, not just watching them. Obviously, there's a lot of things that you might see and that kind of make you anxious. But especially when you're filming, I feel like that's got to be pretty mentally taxing. And especially when you're getting so immersed in the character and the world when you're creating them. So how do you get in the right headspace both before and after filming when you're shooting a horror movie like rent a pal so for this one, it wasn't, like, I have to say on set, it was a very joyful experience, which pe- I think people always find a little surprising. Like, not once did I feel like we we're, you know, kind of lingering in this dark, uncomfortable space throughout mm-hmm. filming. Like, it was very, like, there was a lot of jokes. There was a lot of love. The whole thing was just really magical. And so for me and my character, maybe just towards the end where things get into it, like, I was a little nervous, but I wasn't. Like, it wasn't anything that I hadn't done before, so for me, it was kind of fine. I think if I were playing David's role, that would have been a completely whole different ballgame, like getting into that space where he needs to be. But in the past where I've done very dark, I've done, a, I have done a lot of, lot of, like, really dark, creepy, weird stuff, and, you know, I've dealt with filming where I know there was someone that has, or I, my character played someone with a mental illness, and... Back when I was younger, I would really settle into that space and kind of like really live it. And I saw where that was just so unhealthy for me. Dealing with my own mental illness, just kind of really pulling from my own life and my own life experiences. Mm-hmm. And that really worked for me because I got to a state of, you know, hysteria or a state of, you know, emotion that maybe I wouldn't have if I hadn't gone through the things that I've been through in my life. But I realized that I didn't have to live in that space all the time. And so I know there's like a lot of method af- actors that really 
bring their character to life all throughout their daily life, even when they're not even filming. And for me, that's just not healthy. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really started getting into meditation and really more holistic ways to sort of just clear my mind and sort of just connect to my soul really and really some magical things have come out of that for me so that's how I prepare now I really just take care of myself I do what I need to do to feel good it's you know whether it's like eating healthy and getting good sleep and and really just meditating right so well in a year like this one obviously all those things are, are critically important whether or not you're you know in a movie like like rent a but i do you know the elephant in the room we should talk about rent a came out in september and, and granted i don't know exactly what the production schedule was like whether you were filming this year or whether you were just you know working towards the release but given how different the world looks this year you know how did covid impact or, or change the release of, of, of the movie in terms of scheduling or, or other difficulties yeah as far as scheduling i'm, I'm not quite sure about that i know they were saying like you know they were going to do it in the fall and that they were hoping to have a theatrical release and i was really nervous because i was really excited for that obviously to have a you know a whole regional release and um theaters and so for me that was like so exciting but then you know it was kind of sad because the theaters weren't open but miraculously enough about two weeks before the film was supposed to be released they started opening up the theaters Right. And so I was like, oh, my God, like this was so meant there was a lot of times, by the way, like even like before, even before I auditioned throughout the entire filming process and to where we are right now to this day, there were so many synchronicities and so many things that had opened up that were just unbelievable and so just like truly magical. So I really do believe that, you know, it was meant to be released at this time. However, there's some things we did get to miss out on, like a premiere and, you know, doing like the whole red carpet thing and, you know, kind of celebrating with a casting crew. They're all out in Denver and I'm in Jersey. So, I mean, we did get to see each other and celebrate through Zoom, but, you know, it's not the same. But I think the content and the themes in the film really just were so relatable, even more so now. Um, especially with what we've all been through through this entire year. But uh, I think like it, it, it was just a perfect timing, I think. And people really resonated with the loneliness and the themes of, you know, mental illness and like really taking care of yourself. And so, yeah. <laughs> so in the movie Rent-A-Pal, you play the main character's love interest, Lisa. She's a really nurturing character, very empathetic and a natural caregiver. You had mentioned that you've gotten into meditation a lot with regards to holistic health. With that, did that help you to connect to the character or was there additional special prep that was done to make that connection or is that just kind of how you are naturally as a person? I would like to say that I am already like Lisa in a lot of ways. I care a lot about other human beings. I'm very empathetic. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes that's not so great (laughs) because I feel like I really feel when other people are suffering, it really affects me. But I really related and had so much compassion from the moment I read the script, even before I auditioned. And I was like, oh, my God, this is such such a character I can relate to. She's so kind and caring. And and there's a, a lot of me in that as well. And so I was just instantly drawn to her. And I just fell in love with her right away. And I think it's really important to have compassion for the characters that you are playing. And there were some things that I had to do that I thought were necessary for me to really kind of live in the space of Lisa. Like she was a caretaker and she, mm-hmm. um, and I teach meditation. So like I do 
take, you know, I do care for people in, in that way where I, you know, I help them relieve their own suffering. But she worked with senior citizens on the weekends. She volunteered. And that's not something that I had ever done. So I signed up for um, New York Cares is a really wonderful program where you can just volunteer for literally at they have so many things that you can volunteer and, and pick from. And so I chose to work with a senior and help her with her technology. So I helped her with her phone and with her laptop and, you know, helping her with Gmail and how to like send emails. And it was just so rewarding and beautiful. And so it was just a, such a fulfilling experience and it brought me so much joy in my real life. But then I was able to really, the, the lines I sh- that I speak in my opening monologue is real. Like everything I was saying, I was real. I, I, for me, it was so truthful and authentic because, you know, I actually was thinking about this woman that I had helped and how she was so grateful and just that experience that it really um, made that come alive for me. That's kind of awesome, too, because not only then are you obviously helping to better fill that role when you're acting, but that's always going to be something now that you've gotten to take away with like your personal everyday life from this character of Lisa that will always be with you. So that's really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I got to ask, there's a really, really fun scene where you guys are at a roller rink on a date. Did you already know how to skate or did you have to learn for the role? I thought I knew. (laughs) I... So I, that was like the cool thing to do. I don't know about you guys, but like growing up in a small town, like literally the only thing we had was this roller rink, literally like mm-hmm. to get to a mall or a movie theater, you'd have to drive like 30 minutes away. So down the street, I, you know, every Friday night in sixth grade, I, we roller skated and I was always really good. And so I was like, yeah, maybe I should uh, take a lesson before we film or, you know, I was like, nah, I think I'm good. Like it's just roller skating. It's probably like getting out on a bike. And so when we got up, we got the skates on while we were filming and I got up and I was like really wobbly. And I was like, Oh my God, like, this is not what I remember at all. Like, I don't know (laughs) if I can do this actually. And so I was like kind of hobbling along and they were like filming. Oh oh, no, we were rehearsing actually. Sorry. And they were like, Amy, no, like you're, you're the good skater. Like you, you have (laughs) the one. And I was like, no, no, like I'm not acting. Like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) um, but then like as soon as we kind of got it going then it was kind of like I was I was fine and like really hurt my knees and like my ankles though so I was kind of like oh my age is (laughs) really showing I feel like I have that experience every winter when I try to go ice skating for the first time again (laughs) yeah it's like your ankles like are all like knocking and weird and uh, it just like hurts (laughs) I totally understand that's awesome so Rent-A-Pal takes a really interesting look at the relationships we form and the media we consume what key takeaway do you hope the viewers get from this movie with respect to that? Oh, man, just uh, <laughs> just the connection is just so important and 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 just really putting away the social media. And I actually just watched The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you guys saw that documentary. I've heard oh, yeah. about it. I'm afraid to watch it. <laughs> you have to watch it. It's so good. And it really just ties into like kind of that whole theme of just, you know, being obsessed and just addicted truly to, you know, social media and how you lose out on that human connection. And it's just so sad. It's just like, it's really heartbreaking. Every time I watch this film, I cry just because I think we can all relate to that too. And so I just hope it kind of is a really eye opener to like, Oh wow. Like I I could see myself going down that path. Hopefully for a lot of us, not that far as extreme Mm -hmm. as David goes, but um just really nurturing and valuing just human connection 
it's just so important. It's really crucial to our survival, actually. And it's kind of scary the way, you know, even myself, I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I'm addicted. I had to like really realize after watching the social dilemma, like I'm addicted to my social media and my phone. And like, I know better. Like I teach people this, I teach people to not wake up and go right to your phones. But like some days I do that. And so it's a real, it's a real eye opener. And I think hopefully people will see that and kind of be able to take a step back and be like, whoa, like, I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I'm a self-professed kind of kind of a movie nerd. So a lot of my questions are very production based. But I want to talk about so it's a small cast with this movie. Most of the film's time is actually spent, you know, focusing on the main character's interaction with his mother and then a, a VHS tape, mm-hmm. which kind of, I guess, gives color to the, some of the things you were just talking about as well for the listeners who haven't seen the movie. But I guess my question is, did that make for a more tight knit set relative to to what you've experienced elsewhere. And also, you know, did you actually get to work directly with Will Wheaton at any point? I, I, I know like everyone gets a little disappointed when I tell them that I have not, I didn't get to meet him even. I haven't even talked to him. And it's just kind of funny, you know, <laughs> you're in a film with someone and then you don't, you know, you haven't even met them. Um, so I hopefully one day we'll get to, you know, say hi at least. <laughs> um, but yeah, he did his scenes all in chunks the production right um and actually brian landis Fulkins, who plays david was actually doing a play he was a lead in this play so they had to take some time off filming so that he can you know finish out his play and so the first part i came out and i filmed for the first week and then i actually got altitude sickness which i didn't even know was a thing and then oh it, I it's a thing yeah. yeah i've experienced this as well yeah i spent some time in new mexico at one point up in the mountains there and it's brutal so I yeah I feel for you. Yeah, and like I was dehydrated. Like I feel like my eyeballs were like gonna fall out. They were so dry, mm-hmm. and like I was so dehydrated. And towards the end, we were filming the scene where um, we're in the car and we're looking for Lucille, and um, it's very like high energy. And we were like whipping the car around, and I was like, oh my god! Like and John, the director, kept being like, you know, come on, keep keep the energy up. And I was like, I didn't want to like stop, but I was like, God, like I feel I feel yeah. terrible. Like I feel like I might faint actually. And um. We got out and like I felt like really woozy and I was kind of wobbling and then I actually collapsed and luckily some I think two of the guys in the crew like grabbed me in time. But the next day we were supposed to do the the, the ending scene and they were like we can't have you do this. So I actually came back again in like a month later where I did my scenes and like in between that Will Wheaton came and did his um, he was only filming on a soundstage. So he was just there for literally like a morning and then he like flew out. But yeah, like our, our entire, I mean, you know, I've actually had really great experiences on every single set that I've worked on, which I feel like I'm, I'm really lucky. And I actually like really look for that. And I really value, you know, kind of like a family relationship on set. And I've only worked with really great, beautiful, kind human beings. Um, and this filming was no exception. You know, everyone was just so love it. And I, I don't know if it's because like everyone's from Denver and like just the people out there. I was just like, when I had to leave, I actually cried because I'm like, I don't want to leave here. Like everyone's so nice and kind and caring. And it was just, you know, it's just like a <laughs> big difference from living here in Jersey City to, you know, the quality of life out there and, and, the, and the kindness and graciousness of literally every single person that I met. Everyone was joking around on set and there was just a lot of laughs and it was just really magical. 
I hope I answered your question. I feel like I kind of went you, on a tangent. No, you, <laughs> you absolutely did. That was, it's, it's great to hear on all counts. I have been to Denver. I agree. It's an awesome town. I certainly wasn't filming a movie there, but uh, I agree. Everyone I met there was super nice. So that's really great to hear. Yeah. As someone who grew up in Long Island, I can definitely understand the polarities of the, the people in those areas. Yes. And not, don't get me wrong. There are like a lot of great people here too, but you know, it is different. <laughs> So obviously you've done a lot of different genres. You said you've worked uh, like you've done plays, obviously horror films. You also have a lot of other shorts under your belt. But if you could pick your absolute dream role, what would it be? Oh, man, I'd be like Katniss in The Hunger Games. Oh, that's so awesome. That's a great answer. (laughs) Thanks. That's like what I live for. Like I I always want I love like dystopian sort of post-apocalyptic worlds. Like I grew up watching Mad Max and... Um, you know, Dune and, and all that. And so I, you know, I, I would love to like just be the lead hero, like kick ass, like saving the world kind of thing. And I just love those films. So. <laughs> and you definitely take bow lessons beforehand too, right? Oh, yeah. Like I'll do whatever. I'm like all about doing whatever it is I can to, you know, make sure that I'm actually good at it in real life, you know, before I would go film. And that'd be rad. And I do, I have kind of like practiced the, my sister has a bow and arrow and she also has these like throwing axes <laughs> and so like we practice that too so i'm like one day this role is going to come to me and i'm going to be all ready <laughs> your, your sister sounds like the kind of person that you don't want to cross no. bow and arrow and throwing axes no, Good to no. Know. yeah <laughs> so speaking of being the hero role before we sign off today this is another question that we like to ask all of our interviewees if you can have any superpower ever what would it be so that we can classify you as our own podcast Avenger? Oh, man. I would fly. I have dreams about flying. And I just, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's such a lame, like, superpower. But, like, I just have these dreams, like, reoccurring dreams that I'm flying. And it just feels so good. Like, it's so freeing. And uh, that and, you know, healing the world, I guess, really. I know that sounds like super cliche, but I just feel like our planet really needs some real healing and love in this time. So that'd right. be that. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm considering your f- flying is, by the way, a perfectly valid answer. Um, okay. I'm just, I'm just trying to reconcile it with your talking about altitude sickness a few minutes ago. Yeah, uh, that'd be interesting. That wouldn't happen, though, because I would be like a flyer and, you know, <laughs> you'd be way up there. Well, we want to thank you so much again for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you discussing all the ins and outs of, of Rent-A-Pal and, and your career at large. So Rent-A-Pal is currently available on demand, and it's a great watch for, for this time of year and any time of year, but especially this time of year. Before we, we sign off here, are there any other projects coming up that you'd like to shout out? Any last words for our listeners that you want to impart upon them? You have the floor. No, I, I actually don't have anything lined up right now. I think COVID has just been like such a weird time, especially for actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know something good is coming. Like I can just feel it. Like I, I magnetize and I um, I meditate and I, you know, I, I'm kind of like a, what's the word? you know, like the power of now kind of thing. <laughs> like I'm into all that kind of stuff. Like the, the law of attraction is what I meant to say. And so I feel like I, I have a good feeling that something good is coming my way. So I'm kind of just, you know, enjoying what's happening with this film release, enjoying meeting all the wonderful people that I've had the opportunity to meet, like you guys. And, 
you know, just really appreciating like my day to day life. And I'm going to be moving to LA um, in January. So I'm really excited for that new chapter as well. And and we'll see. <laughs> That's very exciting. Great. Well, well, again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, again, Rent to Pale, go check it out. And uh, now I think we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with more podcasting. Thanks again to Amy. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Restaurant.com. With Restaurant.com, you can save at thousands of restaurants across the country with just a few clicks. Their dining deals range from $5 to $100, never expire, and cost you a fraction of the face value. Dinner has never been easier with Restaurant.com. Used for dine-in, takeout, or delivery. Restaurant.com is offering our listeners 50% off their next purchase by going to www.restaurant.com slash podcast. That's www.restaurant.com slash podcast for 50% off your next purchase. Restaurant.com, the best deal every meal. Which brings us back into our main episode. Thanks again to our sponsor and now to some news. And also thanks again to Amy Relage, by the way. We had a pleasure talking to her. Hopefully you had a pleasure listening to it. But now let's talk about Star Wars. So we talked about The Mandalorian last week. Obviously that's still going on. I could talk to you all day about ice spiders today if I wanted to, but we're actually going to focus on a different component of Star Wars, the sequel trilogy. And actually not the sequel trilogy that you are aware of, uh, the one that came out, but the one that George Lucas had originally planned. And there was something of, I don't want to call it an expose because that's not what it is. The Star Wars Archives 1999 to 2005 book hit the shelves earlier this week. And among other things, it details some of the ways that Lucas's Star Wars sequel trilogy would have happened and would have been different than the one that we saw. And of course, I think it's fairly well known at this point what my opinions of the sequel trilogy are. I think a lot of people felt that it lacked, to use a tactic phrase, a certain je ne sais quoi. But Lucas's vision apparently involved one Darth Maul. You remember Darth Maul, the guy who got cut in half at the end of episode one. Spoiler alert. There's a lot to process here, but I, I think to start, we can kind of go around the proverbial table here. Thoughts on Darth Maul as a Star Wars villain, as a potential, you know, trilogy-helming villain. He, he didn't get a lot of time in the prequel trilogy, so maybe he was actually due this reprise. Uh, Tectic, so thoughts on Darth Maul? I love Darth Maul, and it wasn't so much the movies that got me to love him, but more so the animated various series that he was in. Clone Wars. The right? Clone Wars and Rebels. And it's because of that of why I love him. And and the reason why, let me just expand on that, is because you all saw him get cut in half and go down a garbage chute, right? The right. only thing that just kept him going was his pure hatred for Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that's powerful stuff. And, and that's why I liked him. He just, the whole thing was just driven by vengeance and anger. And that's badass. And so that, that gets me going. I I mean, I didn't like that he was so easily killed at the end of the end. Sorry for spoiling. But all in all, it just makes him a really fearful character. He got robotic upgrades and legs and stuff. And so even in the live action, there's serious potential to keep that alive because we've seen it in the animated. We've seen what they can do. He had spider legs at one point. He had regular legs at one point. Just crazy awesome stuff. Well, so when you said he dies, do you mean he dies after the Phantom Menace? Uh, in I, Rebels, uh, Obi Wan finally okay. finishes him off once for all, and it's and it's so, kind of it's almost it's almost poetic in the way that it's done, but it was it was just like boom boom done, and it was just. Have you seen Solo? Uh, yes, I have. Okay, well, we're gonna get into spoiler territory again. I, I wasn't anticipating this for whatever reason. That's kind of confusing to me that he died in Rebels. I didn't know that because he makes a. It's way after of, Solo. Of Solo. 
from a timeline perspective. Rebels is after. Oh, right, because Solo happens. Timelines in Star Wars, man. So he he's at the end of Solo. He shows up, presumably acting as something of a crime lord, and that and that's what Lucas seemed to have envisioned him as as being. Not necessarily a Sith lord. You know, he he will he would have had a Sith apprentice, but it sounds like he's being described more in a criminal underworld, almost like a Job of the Hut kind of way. Except if Job of the Hut, you know, could actually move, kind of kind of way. I've always loved Darth Maul. I totally agree with what you said. You know, the way that he he was built up in Episode One, right? I mean, especially Episode One was this the comeback of this franchise and Darth Maul in terms of the antagonist, he was like the driving in all the promotional material. He was the driving force. He had the, the dual lightsaber was like, that was the thing where star Wars was coming back and they have two sided lightsabers. Now what the, what? Like it was a big deal. And then, uh, you know, Obi-Wan cut him in half, even though he had the high ground and that left us where we are now wishing we had, we had more of him, but he also just like from a, from a physical standpoint, he looks so scary menacing scary and menacing and like so like demonic the way if if you were to imagine a bad guy in the star wars universe unprompted i could imagine you coming up with something that looks a lot like him very easily and so on top of that and this is again going into the animated series it was in clone wars they really delve into his the psychosis behind you know him being trapped in this junk planet with only his thoughts and he just goes purely insane and has like i said these sweet spider legs and if they were to i'm gonna call him spider legs he looked like a spider if they're gonna make that part of it into a live action i am here for that because just as normal people legs he's scary now throw some arachnid parts on it and whoo wee terrifying so and well it's worth noting too and nerd bomber i am gonna i'm gonna give you a chance to cut it's not just gonna be me and technic geeking out this whole time but one final point i would add is that you know after darth maul in the prequel trilogy, what did we get? We got Count Dooku, who was fine. And then we got General Grievous, who by most accounts was like really not fine. I didn't, I don't personally mind General Grievous, but it seems like a lot of people have issues with General Grievous. So I just, you know, it leaves you wondering what could have been. And I imagine it probably also left George Lucas wondering what could have been, which brings us back to the story we're talking about here, which is that he, you know, that he was going to be the big bad of the sequel trilogy. I mean, training Darth, Darth Talon, who apparently was also his apprentice in the comics. And I, I know nothing about these comics, but uh, they were going to be the main two villains. And looking at the villain structure of the sequels as well, I mean, Kylo Ren, I can understand going that way. That makes sense to me. Emperor Snoke was a big swing and a miss. And Emperor Palpatine, I'm honestly back and forth on that as a plot device. But Darth Maul, I have to think at face value, would have been better, at least as a big bad. I feel like you could have your cake and eat it too. Where Kylo Ren was, I think, a really interesting choice because that's obviously Han Solo and Princess Leia then have to grapple with the fact that their son went to the dark side. But you could still have your cake and eat it, too, if Darth Maul was the big bad. I mean, Kylo Ren could have been his apprentice. They could have kind of twisted the comics a little bit to make Kylo Ren Darth Maul's right-hand man, you know what I mean? And explored it that way. Because I agree with you. I think Kylo Ren was compelling, but I think the back and forth, am I good? Am I bad? I'm so conflicted. There, Like, he was supposed to be the underpinning bad guy, but he really wasn't. They, he was always struggling. Right. And you always were kind of empathetic a little bit. He was a big old jerk, but there were times when you were like, okay, well, we know your parents. We care about your parents. Like, obviously, you're going through some stuff. And like, so, like, we care about you as a character, but there was no one that really brought that, like... I'm just a super villain bad guy vibe to the sequel trilogy. And I think that would have 
really helped a lot, or at least tied some things together a little bit better. Because I don't think the the Snoke and Palpatine thing, I was not impressed with those moves. I I wanted Kylo. Ren. We could sit here and talk about what was wrong with the sequel trilogy all day. I want. I read. You know, there were a lot of like leaked scripts to Episode Nine, and I know at least one of them ended with Kylo Ren dying and and basically Ray killing him. It's similar to the Mustafar duel with Obi Wan and and Anakin. You know, it's a similar situation, but it actually ends with. Ben Kenobi doesn't turn good. He he turns full evil and he has to be killed. And I think that would have been better. I think it would have been more interesting to watch. I think Darth Maul, there's no way he wouldn't have been an improvement over Snoke. You know, talking about the, mod- the model that you just mentioned, which is Kylo Ren's still there as, as, as an apprentice figure, but Maul is there as the big bad. There's no way that wouldn't have been better because Snoke, I mean, he was just a colossal dud. Yeah, kind of a weenie in my opinion. Yeah, um, kind of a kind of a weenie. Yeah, but so to your point about Palpatine earlier, he had his purpose because his relationship with Ray, and so I get that. I'm with that. The other thing, though, that I think Darth Maul would have brought to this: you have an expansive universe, and yet we have Jedi's of just humans. Like, right? So also, that. mix it up, people. Like, yeah, the universe is there. Well, one of the other things, too, about this whole reveal, it wasn't just that Darth Maul was the original big bad, but I think Lucas also went on to say that his original plot point was that Luke was going to try to, like, reinvigorate the Order of the Jedi. He didn't just, like, disappear for an entire movie and become a sad hermit on a planet by himself. And ultimately, Princess Leia was going to be the chosen one at the end of his story arc. And obviously, that probably couldn't have happened just because of, obviously, we know... Carrie Fisher passed away and that arc probably wouldn't have been able to be completed. But I think that's the kind of thing that we all wanted to see. And we didn't necessarily want to see like I liked the new characters. They were okay. Gray was fine. But if I like I I wanted to sign up for Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia all getting back together and doing some badass stuff. And instead, that's not what we got. We got them all being kind of sad and some dying. And it, it was just like. I don't know. I feel like that original story arc and then bringing in the villain of Darth Maul, I don't understand why they didn't go that direction because it seems on paper like it should have been so good. So I'm very confused. Like, I want to know what went on behind the scenes to move them away from that story because it sounds good in my head. And it was already proven out in the animated. I always go back to that. That was a quality show. I'm sure this book, oh, and yeah, and now we're seeing elements of the animated and the comics and the extended universe making their way into the Mandalorian and being, you know, well received. So, I, I think this book probably chronicles a lot of what you're describing, Nerd Bomber. I have to imagine George Lucas abdicated control either willingly or because Disney, you know, Disney made him. I this is kind of an offshoot, and I want to move on before we just we could sit here and bash a sequel trilogy all day and explain how it could have been better. But kind of an offshoot, but I saw something today about, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings universe. When he sold the movie rights, his one condition was that Disney could never be involved, which I thought was interesting. And, you know, I think a lot of people associate the sequel trilogy and its lack of success as a Star Wars trilogy. You know, they attribute that to Disney being involved. And I don't I'm not going to sit here and say that that's what it is, but there's probably an argument for that. I mean. The Mandalorian is bucking that because Disney's obviously involved in that and that's been very, very good and very successful. But it's interesting to think about what could have been with Darth Maul or with any of George Lucas's other ideas. I'm sure he had others. 
uh, and instead we got what we got. And it's just, it's a little baffling to realize that that's where we wound up. But we want to know on the social meds, Twitter, we have at OWLegal86, at OWNerdBomber, at OWTactic, and our main show account at OnlineWarriors1. What do you think of, what do you think of Darth Maul? I mean, let's just start there. Do you think he was good? Do you think he was bad? Well, he was a bad guy, but do you think he was a cool villain? I guess is, is more the way the question should be phrased. And uh, do you think he could have had a good place in the sequel trilogy? And also, what did you think of the sequel trilogy? Just talk to us about Star Wars. We're, we're here for it. So there's that. We have to move on to some, of course, sadder news now. We knew Alex Trebek was struggling with, uh, with pancreatic cancer, which uh, of all cancers is the one you don't want. I mean, you don't want any of them, but you especially don't want pancreatic cancer. For years, he was struggling with this, and he finally, last week, I believe, this past weekend, passed away. And look, I, I think Jeopardy is one of those things where it's, I like game shows a lot, and I like trivia a lot. I'm the kind of guy who, oh, Jeopardy's on Netflix. And by the way, if you don't know that, go watch some Jeopardy, you know, if only to, to connect with Alex Trebek. I'll watch it on Netflix. I'll pull it up and, and as I'm laying in bed falling asleep or as I'm on the treadmill, things like that. And as someone who appreciates knowledge and as someone who appreciates the comforting nature of television shows like, you know, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, things that are always on that you might take for granted. For me, this was a huge loss. Even, you know, by 2020 standards, this was a huge loss. Uh, it's a huge loss for a lot of people. And it felt appropriate to to talk about him and his legacy in this episode. I mean, are, are either of you Jeopardy? Did Jeopardy on in your house ever? We haven't watched it lately, but I know growing up, I mean, there was that power hour of Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy back to back. And we mm-hmm. always had it on in my house. My parents would be like doing the dishes and we'd all be, kind of be watching Jeopardy together. And it, it was just, it's a very iconic show and i think as much as jeopardy in itself is iconic i think alex trebek really made that show what it was i mean oh, yes what he hosted was it almost eight thousand episodes of jeopardy over 36 his, years yeah I over 30 i think it's 35 years and man you know it's it's just a sad day another sad loss 2020 has been kind of racking him up but alex trebek i think you know, you never heard a bad thing about the guy. He always seemed mm-hmm. like just this genuinely good person. And even his interactions with people on Jeopardy, like he always seemed like he was super relatable and down to earth and could talk to people and just a, a very impressive guy. I know he has taught me a lot of things through his TV show throughout my life, and he will definitely be very, very missed. Yeah. I mean, uh, every again, you're hearing stories now as as you often do when someone passes, but you're, you know, the guy clearly enjoyed what he did and was a true professional. And, you know, the show itself yesterday was the first day they were airing a new episode since he passed. And they, the producer released a statement uh, before the episode aired, you know, basically saying they're going to continue airing his episodes through the end of this year. Cause he's already recorded a bunch of them. I think it would be crass now to, you know, speculate on who his replacement would be, but imagine having bigger shoes to fill than whoever that poor sap is who who has to replace alex trebek i mean he he was a cultural icon and and, and like you said nerd bomber i mean i especially watched jeopardy more when i was when i was younger and there, there's a nostalgia associated with it for a lot of people and you know nowadays if not watching it on netflix the most i see of it, i don't have cable so the most i see of it is some funny thing that happened that he did or some touching thing that happened that goes up on social media 
or you know when, when james holzauer was getting was having his record-breaking run and everything but he was an amazing man and he will he will truly be missed i mean he did you guys see the clip i, I don't want to get too into specifics but there's a clip around back of the time because he's he announced his diagnosis i think it was last year earlier this year it's been publicly known for a while that he was going through it and the first episode after he revealed it the first episode that was taped after he revealed it so there's a time delay on these sort of things but for someone's final jeopardy they didn't know the answer so they just wrote we love you alex and he got again true professional he got through it but he got very emotional reading it and it was just he meant so much to a lot of people and as a trivia lover he meant a lot to me so it's just it's 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 a hard thing tactic you've been awfully quiet i don't know if, if you've if you watch Jeopardy, if you're a Jeopardy guy, I've watched um, Jeopardy actually mostly at at Nerd Bomber's house later in life. But I mean, you guys said it all, and you said it well. He will be yeah, missed. He will be very missed. There's no sugarcoating it. There's 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 not much more to say than that cancer sucks. So we will move on. But we just wanted to take a moment to <clears throat> express our sympathies, of course, to to his family and his friends and and everyone whose lives he touched and. Uh, we'll be thinking of him and of other and of those people. So, here's to Alex Trebek. Um, what we're gonna to to get to happier news and to especially perk up Nerd Bomber. Some other big news that came out this weekend. This was the happiest I've seen Nerd Bomber on a on a messenger. Uh, I don't remember. Did I all caps this when I messaged I you, you about this, it? This this was an all caps situation. If ever I saw one, Nerd Bomber is a publicly very publicly a, f- a huge fan of the Mass Effect trilogy. And and to a certain extent of Andromeda, but less so. And this past weekend, Bioware and Electronic Arts confirmed, this was on Saturday, that Mass Effect Legendary Edition will be released in spring of 2021. This bundle will include all three mainline Mass Effect games. So that's Mass Effect, Mass Effect 2, Mass Effect 3. This will not include Andromeda. All the single player and DLC for those games, all promo weapons, armor, and packs. And of course, it's a, it's a remaster. So I, Nerdbomber, before you go on, because I know, I know you're going to... <laughs> I want to talk about my experience of being peer pressured ruthlessly to play this game by Nerd Bomber. And I did play it uh, on the Xbox 360. I played the original. I didn't finish it. In fact, I didn't get very far with it. Um, yeah, you didn't give it a fighting chance. I didn't. And, 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 you know, I don't remember the circumstances. I wish I could remember the circumstances. I'm sure there was something going on with me at the time that I couldn't give it my full attention or something of that nature. Even in the short time that I played it, what I can say is that it is a deep, deep game. <laughs> like it is getting all three of these games, even if it's a $60 price point, which I imagine it very well could be. You're getting a lot of game for that. I think there's a very good chance that I pick up this remaster and wind up loving it and wind up getting a whole lot of game out of it. You know, having and hauling on price is one thing. I We were talking before air about, oh, well, if this thing costs $60, I don't know. But if it's 40 you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But um this is also going to have forward compatibility, so it's being released, I think, primarily on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, that generation, but it's going to be given some enhancements specifically for PS5 and the Xbox One X, so lots to look forward to here, and now, yeah, I'm going to let Nerd Bomber talk for a while, and I imagine she's going to. All right, so if you guys have not played Mass Effect yet, and again, looking at you, Illegal, this is probably, this is the game that when I was kind of coming back into video games, so... I had a PlayStation 2 and I played that for a very long time. And then there were like those few years where I stepped away from gaming pretty much completely. And then I got an Xbox 360 and Mass Effect was one of the first games that I played. 
And it really showed me making that jump from the PlayStation 2. And granted, yes, there were games that had really good storytelling, but there was nothing quite like Mass Effect. It was one of the first games that I experienced where I was truly emotionally invested in the game and decisions that I made for the first time mattered very deeply, whether characters that I loved and connected with lived or died. And I'm so excited for the people who haven't gotten a chance to play any of the Mass Effect games yet to jump in because this is something that big Mass Effect fans like me have been clamoring to get for a long time because there's really, there is no good way Besides backwards compatibility, there's no good way to play the entire Mass Effect trilogy on current-gen consoles. And there are some things, too, like especially in the first game, some of the combat systems were a little janky. I don't know how much of that they're going to revisit and kind of revise in a remaster like this. I hope they do a little bit because I think that's that's what a lot of new players kind of get stuck on is some of the, the controls and gunplay being a little janky in the first game. But... I'm super excited because I it, it's just bringing these games and these characters to the next generation of people and especially around a new console lot launch, it's going to give a lot of people a chance to experience these games for the first time. And like you said, there's, there's a lot of meat in these games. I would say the Mass Effect 2 was probably the longest game, I would think, in the trilogy. I know Mass Effect 3 was also pretty hefty. The second game was probably the one I spent the most time with. And I I think I spent like 80 hours with the game, like a long time. There's a lot you can do. And so a $60 price point for these three amazing, masterful pieces of video game storytelling is a great value. And I would say anybody should pick it up. And then on top of that, one of the best mechanics of the game is between Nerd Bomber and I, we we each had our own very, very unique playthrough. I remember we were talking about it and I had asked her, I said, oh, you didn't have this character? And again, they died? And our so right. even even there, our, our teams were completely different. So you get to kind of have your, a unique experience that you make your own. And that's just an awesome feature to have in a game. Yeah, like the dialogue with the characters is incredible and so it is it's really heart-wrenching like tactic said when he said that his character died and it was one that i like tried my hardest to keep alive i was mad at him i was just like how dare you let this person die no you're the one well, that let, had let me, to die mine didn't let me just ask this because I, I remember this and this was this was years ago this had to be maybe even the the, the nerve hour podcast i don't remember but who for which one of you killed the krogan wasn't it the krogan who, who, yeah, so I killed the Krogan, but yeah, Tectic killed that the Krogan. Tectic killed Caden I mean, is who I killed. Yeah, but that was someone who had to die. The Krogan did no. not need to die. Caden didn't need to die. This is what we're talking about, guys. This is what we're talking about. Not <laughs> decision making. It's you know, like I think for me, I, I don't remember having issues with the gunplay, but I remember it was very, it was treading into an RPG world that I had not yet really approached. And like, and even now, like the, the most RPG I get is like basic skill trees that like the last of us two has and mass effect. You're making decisions about whether you're going to be, what is it? Paragon or renegade? Is that what the two yeah, are? Basically good um, or evil, good or evil. And you know, it's one of those games, every conversation you have tilt your needle in one direction and, and your character relationships are tested. But I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a story driven guy. That's one thing that the listeners probably already know about me. And I mean, talk about an experience that's undeniably cinematic. You know, for me, that should that should play. So, yeah, I, I, I do think this is probably in my future. 
I think for you, the biggest thing is that you have to make sure that you don't get bogged down in the details because while it is an RPG, it's not that heavy of an RPG. Like there's skill trees, but like it's not super in the weeds and you're not constantly checking your inventory all the time. It's it's not one of those where like you're constantly going and trying to sell stuff. It's not that in depth. I think you just have to immerse yourself in the story, get involved and engaged in the characters, which is really not that hard to do because the world building, the character conversations and relationships is second to none. It's something that a lot of people have been really disappointed with when it comes to Bioware is that their more recent games like Mass Effect Andromeda, the storytelling was just okay. Like I didn't hate it, but it just didn't live up to the original trilogy. And I think it's just a one of a kind experience that I think you will really like. You just have to make sure you don't get bogged down in the details. Yeah, I mean, Andromeda had an impossibly high bar to even as someone who isn't as big a fan of the games as you are, I will say that like Andromeda had an impossibly high bar to, to try and hit. And, you know, there's probably an argument to be made that they were never going to hit that. But I, I think that, you know, I, I think I've said on the show many times and I'll say it again, like more companies, EA among them, should be doing remasters. Th- this is a no brainer as far as value proposition goes, especially in the case of Mass Effect, where, like I said, you're getting so much game for the buck and Bioware and EA are probably getting a lot of buck for not a lot of work. I mean, the story itself is already there. They have to touch up the shaders. They have to maybe tweak the the gameplay mechanics a little bit, as you mentioned, but I I think they're going to do it justice. I'm sure they put a lot of work into it, but it's, it's the thing that should be happening. Like, please remaster Metroid, remaster Dead Space, remaster, you know, and, and I'll say too about EA, I'm mad at them right now because they are remastering Need for Speed Hot Pursuit instead of the ones that people clearly want and have wanted for ages. Need for Speed Most Wanted and Need for Speed Underground 2. People have been begging for remasters of those for well, decades now. They decades. tried, they like remade Most Wanted, but it wasn't good. It wasn't, it wasn't the good. Same. They, all people are wanting is take those two games, which are, by the way, perfect. Like Most Wanted, the original Most Wanted. Amazing. The best racing game I think I've ever played. And instead, they're remaking Hot Pursuit. And they're not even remaking Hot Pursuit like the old one. They're making. They're remaking Hot Pursuit, the the one that's basically Burnout, the one that Criterion was was in on. They're remaking that one, and like, no one asked for that. Like, I'm I'm sorry, no one asked for that. People asked for Mass Effect. This makes perfect sense, but no one's asking for that Need for Speed. They're asking for different ones, and EA is not giving well, what, it to them. They're asking what for I don't Dead understand, Space. EA is not giving it to them. I'm just, like, sorry. Most Wanted. Not to harp on that, but Most Wanted was like one of my favorite games <laughs> on the PlayStation. It's in my two. top ten, and for sure, it's in my top ten. I don't like literally just make them cars of today but keep everything else almost exactly the same keep the story the same keep most of the missions the same literally just make updated cars updated graphics I don't need current cars i don't need current I, I would drive the same exact cars like i would play the same exact story it's just the gameplay the cop chases in that game are incredible it's the best they've ever done and, and like and need for speed underground 2 was the best you know, most wanted focused less on the street racing and more on the more on the cop chases, and that was really awesome. Underground too focused on Everything the street races me. and the insane customization. Like you could you could put underglow in your car. You could you could have you could like your NOS exhaust could be a certain color. You could get hydraulic. Just remember, like, just remember, it was cool- young illegal jamming to from the window to the wall oh my to the wall the, the riders on the storm wow. remix the, i i legitimately i'm pretty sure i have yeah on my spotify i literally have a playlist called need for speed i think that has 
a lot of like the underground two most wanted jams because some of them were absolute bangers riders on the storm the snoop dog remix forget about it that was the main menu music for underground two do you know when my parents were buying a new car and i don't know why they listened to me i'm sure they probably did research after the fact but i was playing most wanted and you start i think it was what with a chevy cruise at the chevy, time chevy chevy cobalt or chevy, chevy cobalt, cobalt that's what it was yeah. cobalt turns into a cruise in real life later on right and so I was driving around in my Chevy Cobalt and my parents needed a new car because their car died. And I just walk out and I'm like, you should get a Chevy Cobalt. You can put a sweet NOS right. kit in there. And you got at, a Chevy Cobalt. So yeah. Chevy Cobalt was the best starting car in that game. There was, I think you had like three choices. That was the clear choice. Some of the cars in that game, and now we're really digressing, but I don't care. That game was... Not as good as Mass like, Effect. So buy Mass Effect. <laughs> Not well, as good as Mass Effect, but like that game, in terms of like games I want remastered, it's like Metroid Prime Trilogy, Dead Space, Need for Speed Most Wanted. It's number three, which I played a lot of great games in my life. God, Most Wanted was... And, and Need for Speed Underground 2, the drift races. Oh my God. Did you play with a racing wheel? No, a GameCube, right? No. I was on, I was on GameCube for Underground 2. Yes, me too. The yeah. Y button to... Shit. The Y... Yeah, the Y button... Uh, wasn't the X button the handbrake? It doesn't matter. Uh, it was amazing. See, yeah, I I had a racing wheel because I was back in the days like now racing wheels are super expensive and souped up in like ninety bucks. But back in the day, which I'm sure with inflation, thirty bucks felt more expensive at the time. But my parents got me like a thirty dollar Mad Cats racing wheel for the PlayStation Two, and let me tell you, the most fun. And I'm sure that probably makes my experience with Most Wanted even more like hyped in my head. But man, that was something special. Really was. Yeah, I had, I had most wanted for the 360. So it sounds like you had it on the previous generation. I had it on the next gen at the time. Mm-hmm. And God, it, uh, I'll never forget. Like when we first got our, our 360, it was in our living room, which the feng shui of that room. First of all, my mom had to watch me play a lot of Need for Speed Most Wanted because that was like our main TV in the house. And I would just play Most Wanted. She'd be like sitting there doing whatever moms do when they when they can't watch the news and watch me play most wanted but the feng shui was bad so i would have to stand near the tv i would stand for hours playing like i would i I sacrifice i sacrifice the body like that's how good that game was oh man the challenges you had the the last challenge in that game was you had to have a cop chase go for a half an hour which doesn't sound hard almost impossible it's like the hardest thing i've ever done completing that challenge anyways mass effect is getting remastered to put you on the spot a little bit on yeah go ahead please if you don't play Mass Effect when this remaster comes out, I feel like you got to buy me a soda pop me. or something because you're just going to break my heart. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy you a soda pop. The stakes are very low. I was expecting much worse than what you just said. Murder. Well, because I'm hoping that the odds of you having to buy me a soda pop are very low and that you're just going to do it. I've been recommending it for like, I feel like almost a decade now. <laughs> I've been no one, no one recommends something like Nerd Bomber. <laughs> I've known you for a decade, and so that's that's a probably an accurate figure. You've yeah. probably been recommending it. I probably met you in college the first time, and like twenty minutes into our conversation, you're probably like, "If you played Mass Effect, like I, that probably <laughs> happened." I don't remember. I probably I did the classic like, "So have you played Mass Effect?" Right, exactly. This is coming spring of 2021, so my reckoning cometh. Whether it whether it be playing Mass Effect or buying Nerd Bomber or Soda Pop remains to be seen, but. Yeah, get hyped for that. Mass Effectors. Long live the Krogan, et cetera, et cetera. 
so we're going to move now to to what are you up to wednesday uh but before we do oh wait hold on did we discuss before we leave mass effect that they're also making a new mass effect because that was another thing we went off on a tangent but i don't know if we mentioned that that was the other announcement is that they're also working on a new installment in mass effect and i just want to say i don't know if i'm excited it would be called a quadrilogy uh, i'm just i'm skeptical after andromeda which wasn't terrible but wasn't like did knock it out of the park i like leave good things alone you're not ready to be heard again yeah you're saying. <laughs> you have little faith i mean you, you never know it could be incredible we'll see i guess uh i don't know when i mean that has no release date but i mean as star know wars it is an expansive universe with much possibility so i would not say that there's a chance that they could ruin it just yet oh like don't get me wrong i want it to be great i'm gonna buy it day one doesn't matter even if it sucks don't care like i'm just a mass effect shill so i will buy it day one but i i want it to be good i'm just afraid of being sad <laughs> you're afraid of it being bad yeah well time will tell as it will tell whether i'll play the remaster or not but we'll see before we move into what are you up to wednesday it's that time of the episode ben you might have been worried we weren't going to shout you out but we we always going to be shouting you out my friend our good friend ben Shackness is a producer on this episode he supports us on patreon at the highest level here's to you ben patreon let's talk about patreon so as i said ben supports us there uh we have three tiers of support the highest one the night level is where sir ben lies and as a result he gets access to the monthly secret segment and vlog as well as this producer shout out input into our weekly game segment which this week is i believe about chicken soup for the soul and the occasional guest spot which that is coming up very very soon hint hint uh for ben so be on the lookout for that there is also a squire level of support which gets you access to the monthly secret segment and vlog and then the page level which gets you access to the monthly secret segment so for more of the details on that you can head over to patreon.com slash online warriors podcast thanks again to ben and yeah we're not going to go to an ad break again we're going to go right into uh what are you up to wednesday because my friends it is wednesday tactic want to lead us off this week so the biggest, most fun thing that happened to me this past week was we put up all of our Christmas decorations. 2020 has been awful, and the sooner we can start spreading cheer and happiness, we are going to. And by gosh, by gosh, by golly, we have the brightest Little house on Holly? the block. Oh. And it's only because we're the only house with Christmas lights on it. But still, the brightest Have you heard that song? Oh, by gosh, by golly. Oh, you it's bet. It's time for mistletoe and holly. Yeah, that's Um, what I was going with. I'm going to confess something here on the air because I feel this is a safe space for me with you guys and the listeners. Don't prove me wrong, but I am the kind of person who has a strict tradition. Did I talk about this last week with my Christmas music tradition? And am I retreading? trying to remember if I I think we did. We talked about it a little bit. We went really holiday-ish. Yeah, I've broken the seal very early this year. So uh, I respect the early Christmas decoration. I've seen photographic evidence of this my fellow online warriors, and it's a spectacle. And as Tactic mentioned, the rest of the street is dark. So that means you won, really. They'll catch up. Here's hoping. Well, Nerd Bomber, what do you have to add, if anything? So gaming-wise, I've been taking a little bit of a break because this is the next-gen console launch week. And I know some people got their Xboxes yesterday or today that we're recording this. And I will be hopefully getting my hands on my PlayStation tomorrow, the day after this episode goes live. So I don't want to start anything new because I want to I want to jump into Spider-Man almost like ASAP. So 
I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to like finish something halfway and never go back to it because I love Spider-Man and will never go back. So really what I've been doing, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but here we are. I've been watching Dawson's Creek and uh, let me tell you, the 90s were pretty wild. I have never, never watched Dawson's Creek before. It's not good. It's not. I've never seen it. I, I watched, so Netflix is advertising this because it's been just recently added. And on Facebook, they put the first scene where which one's dawson is katie is katie holmes dawson or is dawson the guy (laughs) dawson is james vanderbeek okay so dawson and whatever katie holmes character's name is joey are hang are are hanging out and joey is like i'm gonna go home and dawson is like no stay and sleep in my bed and she's like that no we're too old (laughs) for that and he's like, no, come on. And it's th- like a whole scene for like five minutes. And it made me so uncomfortable. And I just imagine that's what the whole show is. So it's like, t- please yes. tell me I'm wrong. No, no. you're right. <laughs> so the first season, it gets off to a pretty cringeworthy start. He's and like, we're not I don't gonna fall know. in love. Like it's, it's, ugh. I don't know if the whole series is like this. And like I said, I've, I've never watched it before. This is my first watch through. I remember like growing up, like mocking the show. But now I just... Netflix advertised it and I just I want to see what it's about because so many people love it so like there's got to be something good here he's and- the weird he's the weird I just have to say this he's the weird kid that carries around a, a video camera and just records things randomly so like my my thoughts so far and I'm only like maybe halfway through season one. First off there is an extremely extremely uncomfortable and problematic storyline uh, I, I don't remember his name in real life, but the guy who plays Charlie Conway in Mighty Ducks, he is in the show. His character is named Pacey, and there is a whole story arc about how he is banging his 36-year-old English teacher, and he is like 15 years old, yeah. and it's yeah. it's just like, what what is this? Who approved this to go on air? And like, she you doesn't wanna- get arrested. She like rides off into the sunset. They try to make it seem like it's all like, oh, so Above sad. Board. They can't be together. But it's just, this is freaking creepy. What? What is this? You know what I have to say to that? I don't want to wait oh. for our lives <laughs> to be over. You don't even get that. You don't even you don't get, get that, that satisfaction because they lost the rights to the theme song. No. So they Why replaced even put it. it? On? <laughs> i don't know the first time i like because the theme song is after the cold open right so right you know you you sit through five minutes of the show in the first episode and you're like okay here's the payoff the song and then it's just some other song you're like what is this like is it gonna cut in at some point what's the song i honestly i have no idea i skip intro once i heard it wasn't that song i was like skip right you better believe if that song was still on there i'd be I'd be not hitting that skip intro button every single episode. I'd be like, here right? we go again. I don't want to wait for a lot. I mean, that song opportunity. Was a freaking, who is who sang that song? Is that a one hit wonder? I have no idea. I'm and Googling like, that right now. What was she doing thinking of pulling her song from the show? Because think about all the royalties she could be making right now. You know what I mean? It's having a Netflix Maybe she resurgence. saw the show and was like, yikes. But yeah. Paula like, Cole. They're... The kids, too, and in all of the reviews and stuff, everyone's lauding the show because, oh, the kids are, like, witty, and they use snappy vocabulary, and they talk fast, and they don't, like, dumb it down for teenagers. But also, these kids don't speak like real teenagers. So, I mean, as an adult, I appreciate it because it makes it a little bit more watchable, but 
that there's just a lot of 90s cringe going on and it's interesting it's very interesting it's a it's a weird flashback to the past i hope it gets better i'm like i'm halfway through the first season and now i'm invested so like i gotta see it through but wish it gets better i'm just i'm still having a really hard time coming to grips with the fact that i don't want to wait is not used in the intro like what again why even put the show on that's all anybody knows about it yeah i but yeah that first scene oh man i wouldn't be able to make it through that if i even if i sat down right now on netflix and was like i'm gonna watch this that first scene would scare me off it's just very very strange yep good to know you're watching it though (laughs) keep us updated on uh on dawson and his creek why is it his creek Honestly, I've been trying to figure that out. I literally think it's just because he lives on the creek. And it's confusing, too, because I I looked this up after the fact, after I started watching, but he's not even in every single episode. Katie Holmes' character is the only one in every single episode. So why is it like Joey's Creek? I want to know. Sexism (laughs) might be the answer. Also, Dawson's Creek sounds better because Dawson is one hell of a name the names are interesting uh, you've got like pacey, pacey dawson like yeah joey where is this in america like where I think is it's dawson supposed Creek? to be somewhere in massachusetts okay well katie holmes james vanderbeek we have available interview slots on our show uh we just interviewed amy rutledge you, you heard how well that went we would love to chat with you about beepers and i think that would be interesting you know what happened to beepers that could be a whole segment. On my end of things, I have a couple of recommendations. Sticking with Christmas music for a second, and knowing that this is breaking the rules, it's probably even more of a cardinal sin to recommend Christmas music to other people during this time of year. But uh, Leslie Odom Jr. just came out with a new Christmas album. Not not the one you might already know, which is where he sings all these Christmas standards. Uh, that came out either last year or a couple of years ago. He came out with a new one this past Friday. And for those that don't know who Leslie Odom is, he's Aaron Burr from Hamilton. And... When you talk about silky smooth voices, none compare. He's like a more, he's less of like a, he's silky smooth like Bing Crosby, but obviously his voice is like way higher. If that's, that's not really a a very good comparison, but he's really good and I recommend checking it out. That's one recommendation. Another kind of an old, older cut movie that showed up on Netflix that I was like, oh, I wanted to watch this. I want to watch it for a while. I'll watch it now. Snowden, uh, which did you guys see Snowden? How was that? I wanted to watch that. It's very good. I would recommend it. You know, you should know what you're getting into, but in case you don't, it's going to make you scared of everything. So so be ready for that. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is pretty spellbinding. So if you like him, you're going to like the movie. Nicolas Cage shows up. So that, you know, for me, that was really the the draw, one of the draws. So um, I was a big fan of it. It's very, well, you should just watch it. I I don't want to get into more of the details because the story itself is very very compelling but i don't want to give any of it away now i'm just i would say i recommend it for anyone who's curious to learn more about him or knows the story and wants to see it dramatized it's it's pretty good stuff so that brings us to the end of what are you up to wednesday which brings us to our weekly game show segment and this week we are being hosted by tactic and he is talking to us about chicken soup for the soul now to clarify chicken soup for the soul this is the is it a series of books? I don't even know what it is. It I is a I've... barrage of books. Before I get into it, I just want to mention two things. You might be interested in it. There's a documentary on it on Amazon Prime on the whole Snowden debacle. And the other is thing is... For? Yes. The other thing is, I forgot to mention, don't buy Watch Dogs until a little bit because it consistently freezes and they're still working on the update for the Xbox. It should be out on any day now, but 
you might want to continue to wait a week or so before you this buy has it. been a psa from your friendly neighborhood podcast host. yes it makes it it makes it borderline unplayable so chicken soup for the soul it is a barrage of books of inspirational stories and feel-good stories that just kind of true stories yes it's, it's actually not really written by a person so much as it's compiled by a person because it's like an anthology you can, you can actually submit your very own feel-good story to be included in a Chicken Soup for the Soul book. Well, I don't have any feel-good stories. <laughs> oh, that's not funny. a single one. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm plumb so, out. Without further ado, let us get right into it. I've set the stage here for how little I know about this, so the bar is extremely low on my end. But let's just let's, let's do it. In the very first book that was released, how many stories was included in it? Who goes first on this one? I'll let you guys figure it out. I'll go first. I feel like I have nothing to lose. Uh, 16. I feel like it's more than that. I think it's probably somewhere in like the 30 to 40 range. I'm going to be conservative and say 30, though. Both conservative answers, I guess. Uh, it's 101 stories. What the? What are they, paragraphs? I, I'd imagine they're short stories. I mean, if you're submitting something to be compiled, you're not you're not right. writing chapters. You know, It's, it's not a, like, well, to, to, on the day this happened, I woke up and I made some coffee. It's like, no, let's get right into it. The summer Wait, breeze was cool running through my hair. So Nerd Bomber gets a point, as as expected. What's Soul Drone? Okay. So with this first book, when was it published? I feel like this became all of the rage in like the mid-90s. I'm going to say 1994. Mm, I think you're really close. It's definitely a 90s thing. I'm going to go a little bit earlier and hope that you were a little too late. I'm just going to say 1990. So unfortunately, Nerd Bomber busted... And she was just a scooch too late. It was June 28th, 1993. Oh, Ooh, six months off. That hurts. I'll take the point. That's chicken soup for the soul right there. <laughs> so you had originally asked, Rothy. how many, is it a series of books? And, and I said it was a barrage. With that, mm-hmm. how many chicken soup for the soul books are there? <sighs> 101. The same as the number of stories in the first book. 101. Nah, dude, I feel like there's a chicken soup for everyone's soul. I feel like there's chicken soup for the golden retriever soul, chicken soup for the... That, that is how it works, right? Like soul. chicken soup for the nurse and like chicken soup oh, yeah. for the... Yeah. I'm going to say there's probably like 300 of these books kicking around. Probably more, honestly, but 300 is where I'm going to land. So the only solid number I can consistently come up with and... Nerd Bomber could be right, but she could have also busted. And what I found was it's... Over 250 books. Oh, boy. That puts us in a gray area rules-wise. Uh, but I feel I feel like I get it. I feel like it's, I feel like it's me. Yeah, we'll go with that. For now. Over, first of all, why does no one know? I, I had the hardest time finding it, but I really wanted to put that in there, so I went with I, over 250 books. I guess no one sat down and was like, I'm going to go on Amazon and look at every Chicken Soup for the Soul book and count them. That's kind of an undertaking. I'll take the point. <laughs> so before uh, initially getting published... How many publishing companies actually rejected this idea? That's a good question. A lot of stupid ones, I feel like. No, see, I would have rejected this. Really? And I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll give your answer, and, I'll, and then I'll, I'll get more into that. I'm gonna say four publishing houses rejected this. As a child, again in the '90s when this was becoming a hit, I remember like seeing the book or like reading the title and being like, "Chicken soup? What does that even mean?" Like. I think there's a there's a bit of a jump between like like yeah I get chi- I get that chicken soup like makes you feel better when you're sick but like chicken soup for the soul 
it's a strange title. It, it, the imagery is very strange to me. It's like if it's like if I'm reading this book, I'm gonna open it. And Everyone like, has a different steam's comfort gonna come food out. too. Yeah, but I picture like I'm opening this book and steam's coming out and it smells like chicken soup and I'm like I don't want that. I want to read a book. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say seven. So illegal gets this one again. It is thirty publishing houses actually rejected it. Really? I did not even know that there were that many, but I'll take the point. <laughs> Okay, so once it got published, how many copies of all of these books have been sold worldwide? Quick score update. Am I am I in the black here? Like, is there enough questions for Nerbomber? Isn't it like three to one right now? Yeah, but she can get it if she gets all of these. She can tie it up. Okay. How, what your the question is? What's like the worldwide gross number of copies sold? Number of copies sold. Um, well, there's over 250 books. I don't know. I don't know why that that would help me. 200 million. Okay, I'm going to say this was a phenomenon originally. And I'm going to say like the first 25 titles sold like, because I, I feel like I can envision the cover of one of these saying over 300 million copies sold. So I'm going to I'm gonna do some calculator math. So the first like 25 sold 300 million. Oh, I can I type that much? Yeah, I can type that much in my calculator. Oh boy, that's a lot. And so maybe 200 more just to be can play it safe maybe only sold a million because then too many uh 70 oh i don't even know what this number is it's so large billion? if you say gajillion you bust it hold on hold 70 on. billion copies <laughs> i think i'm gonna more copies say... than a, a, grains of sand are on beaches in on i think I'm, I'm gonna say 70 billion that's excessive and insane but i'm just I'm going crazy right. woman there are the probably calculator doesn't lie think about it there's probably people out there who have purchased multiple chicken soup for the soul so books. if you ever watch price is right when you're in this desperation scenario you do <laughs> the plus one rule generally not the plus 70 billion rule. the so calculator nerd bomber, doesn't lie nerd bomber busted by a wow. lot. Wow. A, sh- a shock. The answer was 610 million copies. <laughs> but nobody even knows how many of these books are out there. This number isn't firm. <laughs> okay, you need to relax. I can't remember the last time I saw one of these books, which just that alone tells me there's not 70 billion <laughs> in the world. If there were 70 billion of these books, they'd be stacked up against the walls of the room that I'm sitting in. Right now. <laughs> Right? There are 70 so I, billion I can, chicken soups out there. I could see the math for the next question coming up. So I'll, I'm going to ask it and then I'm going to say the math that Nerd Bomber is about to do. Chicken noodle soup for the soul was on New York Times bestseller list for a number of years. How many years? And now what you're going to do is you're going to take the year that it was released. <laughs> you're going to take the year we are today. You're going to add how many years have been inside of 2020. And then and that's going to be your by... number. And you're going to end up with... 200,000 years. <laughs> and, multiply, and then multiply it by a billion. I'm going to say one year. Oh, it's more than that. Come on. Now, now you're gun shy. I, I'm going to say four years. So Illegal gets it right on the nose. Screw this chicken soup. <laughs> at four years. Wow. I, this chicken soup is tasty. I didn't know I knew this much about chicken soup for the soul. D- am I? Do I have chicken soup in my soul? You had a near clean sweep too, by the way. You're enlightened. Yeah, I've, I've reached a higher plane of existence thanks to chicken soup. Is that it? Are we done? That was six questions. You got five of them right. Yeah, I'm saying I could easily answer ten more correctly. I'm not. I don't want to do that. But uh, just want to bury me. I know a thing or two about chicken soup for the soul. That's the takeaway here. It means I'll be hoping. I'll be hoping. No, I'll be hosting next week. I won't be hoping. Hoping for next week. I'm going to be hosting next week. So tune in for that. 
we're going to sign off now, but we want to thank again, Amy Reltledge for joining us for the interview we had earlier in the episode. We really enjoyed that. We want to thank all of you for showing up to listen. Thanks to our Patreon supporters again for, for getting back to the show and, and helping us keep this thing running. And if you're so inclined, hit us up on Twitter or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For Nerd Bomber and Tectic, I am Illegal86, signing off. We'll see you next week.